welcome to Back from the Abyss. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock. That was a recording that Chris and I made during a recent visit to the Stout Street Clinic in Denver. We went there to meet Dr. Dave Iverson, a psychiatrist and head of psychiatric services for the clinic, which serves the homeless and indigent population of Denver. Ever since the fishbowl at the end of last season, I'd been looking for the right person to sit down with me and explore this complex nexus of homelessness, severe mental illness, and addiction. And after a months-long search, I finally found Dave. Dr. Dave Iverson has devoted his entire career to serving those with the least. He's been a psychiatrist on the front lines of the growing catastrophe that we see on the streets and sidewalks of every American city. Today's episode is a bit of a departure for Back from the Abyss. Usually, we zoom in on personal stories. This one is more of a zoom out with a public health and policy perspective, though we do get to hear a lot about what it's like to work in the psychiatric trenches. The deep sense of purpose and urgency, along with the constant losses and ever-growing numbers of people to serve. It gave me so much hope to get to know Dave Iverson, a physician and a psychiatrist who leads with his heart. I hope you find this conversation as compelling as I did. This is an episode that I've been thinking about making for months. And listeners, for those of you who heard Fishbowl 4 at the end of last season, Chris and I talked about something that we're both very interested in, which is what is happening in this nexus of mental illness and homelessness and addiction. And so Chris and I had sort of resolved at the end of last season that we got to make an episode on this. And after a multi-month search, I finally found you, Dave Iverson, psychiatrist in Denver. So thank you for agreeing to sit down with me. Thank you. Yeah. Why don't we just jump right into the big question? I guess what's gotten me so interested in this question is, you know, I live in Fort Collins, a city of about 150,000. And while we have homelessness there and there are people on the streets that clearly have mental illness. We don't, it's not in your face the way it is when I travel to Denver, when I've been to Portland or San Francisco or LA or New York. And, you know, homelessness is something that has been around for a long time, but it seems like something has really changed because as a psychiatrist, as I'm visiting these big cities, I'm walking around and I'm saying, I'm thinking there are incredibly sick people all over the place. And I don't remember that being the case 10, 15 years ago. Maybe I just wasn't looking, but it seems like something has really changed. And Denver's a good example for those of you who've been to Denver. I mean, downtown Denver has really changed with 10 cities. Again, not just more homelessness, but people who seem really ill, people getting in your face. And so I guess my opening question, Dave, is what's going on? Why? Is, is this in fact the case you know, that we're seeing a lot more really ill people on the streets? And why is that? 
It's complicated, of course, and multifaceted. It is true that you're seeing more people because there are more people. When I got uh, back to the clinic where I was seeing uh, almost universally people on the streets or in shelters, in 2019, after some taking some time away, I was struck also by all the tents. And I asked the head of our outreach, you know, what's up with the tents? How come, how come we didn't have those 10 years ago? And they're cheaper. So they're, it's easier. It's easier to get a tent and just set that up. Denver, of course, has not coped well with that because like a lot of municipalities around the country, they're doing sweeps. So usually for reasons or excuses, let's say, of sanitation, cleanliness, picking up garbage, rodents, infestation, what have you, they'll say, you got to pick up and move. That just, it doesn't solve anything, just uh, sweeps the problem down the road or to the next block. Another factor is uh, the pandemic. There was an, an issue on one of our psychiatric newsletters that we get, you know, gratis through the mail. At, uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, a psychiatrist out east said something that stuck with me. He said, pandemics make everything worse. And as psychiatrists, we know that's been true for trauma, grief, anxiety, insomnia, depression, anxiety disorders, addiction, overdoses. You know, we could go on and on because of the stress of COVID and just the ravages it's made on our society and the world, of course. But it didn't help the mental health system. Now, you would have thought collectively we, we could have s stepped up and said, well, they need us more. The general public needs us more. But I don't think we've coped particularly well as a mental health system. And even today, I called on a former colleague over at the state hospital, and I said, look, I know you brought your admissions down to a crawl during COVID because you had to make sure you weren't just bringing it into the hospital in crowded conditions, et cetera. And has it... Have you gotten back to normal? And they haven't still. They're almost there, but you know they're still below capacity and, and admissions have been uh, slowed. I think probably the biggest issue to me, and when I first latched on to this type of health care, and this was back in the 80s uh, when I was in medical school in Chicago, uh, we had on the south side the St. It's still there, St. Basil's Free People's Clinic, basement of a church. And I loved it immediately. The clients, the patients were so grateful and gracious. So I was hooked. And so I've worked with people experiencing homelessness really every year but one in my career, 33 years in Colorado. And it became imperative to, to also step back and go, what is going on? Why can't we get ahead of this? What is our problem? So lately, for me, in all my reading and talking to people, I've been focusing especially on inequality. And there's a study, 2021, uh, the author is Byrne, I think, B-Y-R-N-E and others, does inequality worsen homelessness? And they looked at a number of municipalities around the country, and they found that as they crunched the numbers, when inequality worsens, in cities 65,000 or, or greater. You mean wealth inequality or income inequality? Yeah. yeah. Then homelessness uh, shows a marked uh, uptick mm -hmm. and can account for increase in people on the streets in the hundreds. Mm -hmm. Now, so, is it your sense, you know, the homelessness is clearly up, but is it that 
it's just tracking proportionally with folks with serious mental illness. So that's why we're seeing more. Or is it your sense that no, the percentage of people that we're seeing unhoused, actually, there's a higher percentage of them now with serious mental illness on the streets than there used to be 5, 10, 15 years ago? My sense is that you're right. Uh, The numbers are difficult to track and study. And we don't have an army of good university-based researchers helping us with understanding what's happening with our homeless clients. But we do have some numbers. And I think proportionally, people with serious and persistent mental illness do suffer worse at times like these. In fact, the title of that article I was just mentioning is called A Rising Tide drowns unstable boats, Hmm. uh, which I like uh, that title. When we've tried, when I've tried to advocate for people, our clients, and those without health insurance, those without housing, those without jobs, those without income, it's always a tough road. Our clients are always considered last. Our patients don't have lobbyists, don't have uh, legislators that are actively seeking them out and trying to say, well, what can I do to help you Meanwhile, I think the payment structure for the work we do just seems to get whittled away more and more. I came to Colorado in 1990, and TABOR was adopted in 1992, Taxpayer Bill of Rights. And we're still arguing. It's on the front page of the Denver Post today about what are we going to do to try to get the sort of tax base, the sort of tax revenue we can do to provide services, not just for health care, but for education. So our clients are at the end of the line on any particular line you choose as Mm -hmm. far as funding, help, services, resources, you name it. And I think we have uh, suffered disproportionately. Yeah, I've wondered, you know, when I'm in downtown Denver or in any other cities, I I look around and I think, is this a psychiatric access issue, treatment access? Is this a housing issue? Is this a meth or a cannabis issue? Is this a systems issue, and I guess probably the answer is all of the above. Um, But there does seem, and you and I talked about this a little bit before, it does seem to me that there is not just more psychosis on the streets, but there's there's just, again, and maybe it's just because of the overall uptick in homelessness, but there, I've just had more really unsettling encounters with psychotic people in the streets when I was in LA a couple of years ago, I just couldn't believe how many incredibly ill people. It would almost be like if I were a visiting cardiologist and I saw people having heart attacks on every street corner. I'm thinking, what is going on? Like this is like out of some science fiction movie. And and so yeah, I was thinking, again, is this um, due to meth or legal weed? Or again, is this just that systems and, and income equality are, are making things impossible for people to have a stable life or all the above? or Do you have a sense of that? It is all the above. And I think it's important that we do try to tease out all the factors if we're going to, you know, make any progress. When I first started this type of work, the cocaine was more popular. We certainly had a lot of people struggling with alcohol. We still do. Uh, a few people using methamphetamine in, in, specific ways, not the scourge that it feels like it is right now, and certainly not fentanyl like we have now. So those are factors. And there's a colleague of ours down south. She used to run the circle program, Dr. Libby Stout. She's a friend, and 
we've crossed paths and worked together a number of ways over the years. So she has been speaking over multiple states here in the West about uh, high-potency marijuana. And the research has been slow to come. We all know that because the feds were barring that research, and now that's being lifted. So the research is starting to come in. But it does look like that compared to the marijuana that everybody was familiar with, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, um, 4 to 5% THC, now with dabbing the other forms that people can get into, uh, edibles, what have you, with percentages up around 90% or more, it does look like uh, we're getting some data that shows that violence, aggression, psychosis, and anxiety, and mood dis- disorders have followed the increase in potency with that mm-hmm. pot. And that feels true in the work we do and in the lobby of our main clinic where I was recently working. We work with 16,000 individuals over the course of a year. People seem angrier. People seem more psychotic, more delusional, tougher to treat. And so I think that is... So you're seeing that as well, because that's kind of from my... We are. From my walking around the streets, suburban psychiatrist perspective, it seems <laughs> like people seem more ill and more agitated and more, yeah. more scarier. And more meth. And more meth, yeah. And, of course, meth is devastating. And we don't have good treatments for it. Contingency management is the leading contender for what we can do to try to help people say, well, instead of meth, how about you, you know, we give you a ticket for the gym or we try to entice you to keep your apartment clean or or show up to a group twice a week. And, Mm -hmm. And if that's the best we've got for treatment, yeah, it's a tough road. seems like, you know, in all of psychiatric care, one of our biggest challenges is building trust. I mean, that's true in my office and or in your office or um, in your clinic, but I'm guessing maybe that's an even bigger issue for you and the population you've been working with. It's everything. Yeah. How, how do you do that? I mean, here you, um, you and I are privileged white guys and, you know, and you, I mean, I would imagine people look at you with a lot of suspicion initially, like, who is this guy? And, you know, is he going to lock me up or is he going to drug me against my will or does he have my best interest? I mean, how do you go about sort of trying to do this work, build trust and, and start treatment? Carefully and deliberately and uh, patiently. I can tell you a few stories. Had a patient recently, met her once. And then she uh, connected with one of our therapists, which is good. Very traumatized lady. She's 60. She's on the streets. She's with her son, who is a, a registered sex offender. Uh, hugely traumatized, domestic violence, what have you. And the therapist sent me an email saying, uh, she doesn't know if she wants to come back and see you because you're going to hypnotize her. Mm-hmm. And I, I said, no, I, I, I don't do that here. <laughs> <laughs> I don't do that hardly ever. Uh, where'd she get that idea? But we couldn't we couldn't figure it out. But in fact, she did come back. And uh, I didn't bring it up. And in fact, as I move around the community uh, with my practice, she plans to come with. Uh, so the trust got won over one way or the other. I find, as a white male, as you point out, you better be a really good listener. And there's a statistic somewhere that if doctors would just shut up for three minutes we would get 70% of the information we really need 
for the encounter, but we can't. <laughs> you know, we, we shut people down and we change the subject. A woman I knew in the 90s with schizophrenia, she would clear out the lobby because she would eat garlic, raw garlic, cloves of it. And the bus she'd take to the clinic would empty out. And it was hard to be in the room with her. And she was obsessed with uh, persecutory delusions about the government and et cetera. I actually counted by the time she agreed, she came once a month, and by the time she agreed to accept an antipsychotic medication, it was about a year and a half. But we, we won her over. Mm. It could be the simplest things at a clinic for people experiencing homelessness, offering somebody a drink of water, asking if they had anything to eat, and can you get them a, a fruit and a cereal bar of some sort. As Bessel van der Kolk says so well in his book, Body Keeps a Score, contrary to how we were trained, you know, get through your history, check all your boxes, ask about developmental history, history of trauma, neglect. Don't ask about that. They're not going to tell you. They shouldn't tell you. Why should they tell you? They don't, they don't know you. So I have always coached my teams to say, be, be patient. Earn trust first. You're not going to get through everything. You're going to have to make a decision based on incomplete info. Mm-hmm. that's okay. That's your problem as a doctor. That's not their problem. Just try to create some sort of trust and connection. That's all you got to do for starters. So it, it does take, I think, some special skills to be able to settle it down and kind of shift into a different uh, mode than we're used to throughout mm-hmm. healthcare. Have you found that you know, some of the most ill people, is it a better approach in your work to kind of do outreach to them where they are and say, you know, hey, we, again, you can maybe give them a cracker or maybe some snacks, but say, we have treatment or we have people you could talk to, or is it better to sort of wait for them to come to you? Or I guess the third option is they sort of get brought to you by, you know, neighbors or cops or, I mean, again, it's, I, I find in my work, it's people are often so ambivalent to come see me. And there's just a whole other level of, barriers, I would think, to actually walk in the clinic to see you. Yeah, you're right. And uh, we take it for granted, I think, being physicians, that you set up a clinic schedule, you have a nice office, there are clerks to welcome people, and that, you know, people are going to come through your doors. But no, that's actually just a subset of uh, folks experiencing homelessness. In the late 80s, out of Madison came the community treatment model called the ACT, sort of community treatment. But I swear, in a lot of places, not just around Denver and our state, but I think nationwide, people get confused over what's the assertive part. Well, the assertive part is we're supposed to get the care to them. In Denver, we've been lucky with what's called the Housing First model and also a national model towards homeless health care called SIB that we can house some folks in some of our own properties. But that doesn't mean they're going to come to your clinic. In fact, they may even be less likely. Now they got a place to be, and, and they can shut the door and lock the door and have some privacy in their own home. So you got to knock on the door. You have to, you have to get to them. We have outreach teams of various types, and they are especially adept at telling people like us, physicians, look, you can't just drop out of the sky and go talk to somebody in a tent or down by the river or under a dock. If you're going to do this, you have to come with us every week and shut up for the first month or so. Just listen and let people get used to you and your face and to see that you're not a threat. Mm -hmm. 
until they, they know to trust you and that you actually do want to help, that you don't have some other sort of agenda. Mm-hmm. Is it a different approach with people on the streets who are psychotic? I mean, is it the same kind of, you know, patient, trust building, maybe even offering gifts kind of thing? Or, and or do you see that some other approach is needed? Because again, oftentimes they're too ill to, real, to realize that they need help or that there's something wrong. A really phenomenal outreach worker named Paula, who's been a friend, and she and I have worked together for a number of years in a number of locales, actually. We tried to have a uh, just a brief meeting mid-morning at Starbucks and have coffee. And we could hear screaming down, you know, a block or two away. Somebody who was psychotic, maybe manic, and um, probably on meth. People were clearing out because you could tell she was coming. Paul is so good that after a while and some kind of mutual circling of each other, she sat down with us and uh, I went in and grabbed her coffee and a Danish. You couldn't hardly make out what she was saying. So I've always felt, even back as an intern in the psych ER, in the ED, that you have to listen for what the person is trying to say. Are they frightened? Are they angry? Are they paranoid? Are they asking you for something? And it may take some guesswork, but don't run away. Don't shut it down. Again, be patient and engage. Don't touch the person. Uh, Socially, we're... We're socialized, I think. There are some people that are close talkers, some people that are huggers, some people that are going to put their hand on your shoulder. Don't, don't do that. <laughs> and folks that are traumatized are especially going to react. So I think from a trauma-informed care perspective and with you know, experience and patience, people find best ways to get past that resistance and, and make a connection. good friend who's an ER doc and he joked with me once, but uh, I, I think it's true that he said, you know, all doctors hurt people. It depends on our specialty. He said, he said, I stick needles and painful things in people. And, and uh, I hurt people that way. He said, you're a psychiatrist. How do you hurt people? And I said, well, I think one of the ways we have to be really, I don't know if hurt is the right word, but we have to intervene in ways that can be painful is with involuntary commitment, involuntary treatment. And so I'm wondering if we could just talk a little bit, because, and this is also one of the things I think that like the anti-psychiatry movement really jumps all over because there've been some terrible abuses in the past and in other countries and people being, you know, arrested or held for psychiatric reasons. But when you think about this specific issue, um, severe and persistent mental illness, psychosis, agitation, homelessness, and then involuntary treatment, how do you, how do you think, where does that fit in? How should we best understand that? I think about it all the time. I think it's one of the great ethical and uh, legal and moral challenges for any of us, especially in this field, but much broader, especially as you point out, Craig, that anybody that visits a major city, and it's a rural problem too, um, will encounter somebody that's experiencing homelessness and may appear pretty impaired, gravely disabled. If, if I can, 
and feel free to cut me off because I can get on a roll. Um, now, this is actually one of the reasons I'm most excited to talk to you because I just, in fact, we've had some listeners ask about this, this very topic. So it, it's, yeah. it's compelling. And, you know, um, I think you and I grew up at a time when Cuckoo's Nest was a big movie and Jack Nicholson and Academy Awards and stuff and made a big impact on people. In fact, in my travels, I still will hear the occasional civil libertarian attorney that will say, well, you know, we don't need Nurse Ratchet, you know, dealing with my client. So the pendulum keeps swinging back and forth. And I think it's important for us to be humble, not just as psychiatrists, but as a society. Because I don't think anybody has really found the answer. Fuller Torrey said that the 20th century was two consecutive tragedies for people with serious mental illness. 50 years of being warehoused in backwater snake pits, mm-hmm. forgotten and abandoned and neglected. And then 50 years of utter abandonment on the streets, uh, neither of which helped. As a forensic psychiatrist and attending meetings and talking to you know, others that have really delved into that legal aspect of the work we do, you'll hear all sorts of opinions. We can't go back to the days of asylums, anything but that. There is a strong advocacy group outside of Washington uh, called the Treatment Advocacy Center, Fuller Tory founded that, where uh, they, I think, have arrived at a position with the help of some staff members who are people with lived experience, some of them very strong advocates for the best care available for people we're trying to help, people we care about, that says that we're against involuntary treatment in all circumstances, except when it's completely unavoidable. Mm-hmm. Unavoidable. And, and I like that point. I like that approach. Barney Frank had a documentary documentary out about Representative Barney, Barney Frank, which I liked, called Compared to What? Which I guess he liked to say as a very fierce, <laughs> you know, person that can really engage in debate. And, and I like to think about that phrase, too. You don't like asylums? Fine. Compared to what? Being locked in jail, being locked in prison, being dead, being addicted, being on the streets. So obviously we haven't found the answers. What we're doing now, I think personally, it's my bias is worse than having had people in facilities where they could get care that could help them. Mayor of New York City rolled out um, an initiative to try to get more people who were apparently suffering from mental illness and gravely disabled, those were his words, I believe, off the streets and into care. He was met with a lot of skepticism, and it sparked a lot of justifiable um, debate and discussion. There was an article in one of our psychiatric newsletters in March saying, look, if you want to force involuntary treatment on a person suffering from a serious mental illness, look, we should have housing first before we resort to that. It made me really angry. Mm. And I wrote a letter to the editor saying, that is our highest level of care. Why would we... Meaning providing housing? No. Um, providing involuntary well, treatment that's our for, okay. for somebody yeah. who is yeah. maybe danger to themselves, danger mm-hmm. to others, mm-hmm. or so gravely disabled that we had a client not long ago at our clinic who had sawed their ear almost clean off because of voices. The ear was stitched back on and they were put back on a street. When did the treatment happen? So I wrote and said, no, we should not exempt 
one significant portion of our population, friends and neighbors and and loved ones who just happen to be on a street just because they don't have a place to go back home to. That's wrong. Mm-hmm. That's the reverse. That's the opposite of what we should be doing. Uh, there's nobody who might qualify for that level of treatment that should be exempted from it. Now, here's the rub. I've noticed in recent years in our community here and in our state, if somebody comes to me and goes, hey, I've got a cousin with a an serious anxiety disorder. I've got an adolescent daughter who's you know, suicidal or passively suicidal, maybe cutting on herself. Where should we go for treatment? I don't always know what to recommend. And I, I realized, and this, this is painful for me, Craig, that I, it was harder for me to defend our system and the work we do. And if we're going to do something as strong-armed as taking somebody's civil liberties away, and maybe the cops are handcuffing them and putting them in the backseat of a, of a cruiser, and, and maybe they're sitting on an ER cot for three days or longer, waiting for a bed mm-hmm. that's not even there, then what are we accomplishing? So it's really become a, a very, very tough equation. And in fact, uh, with our homeless uh, healthcare teams, trying to help people experiencing homelessness. We, we have very sharp, excruciating debates about, okay, do we do this today? Mm-hmm. If not today, when? Are we willing to face the consequences if we don't do it? What may happen? And of course, bad things do happen. And it brings us back to our advocacy at any and all levels we can to try to make things, to try to make the system, we don't have a system. To try to recreate a system. Yeah, there's no system. Yeah. Because it seems like even if you had pretty aggressive involuntary commitment treatment for, say, agitated or psychotic people on the streets, that um, at least now in the U.S., there's no place for them to go. Like, we don't have, there aren't hospitals, there aren't treatment centers, there's, there's no beds, there's no infrastructure. I mean... Correct. Yeah. It leads... Um, providers to a real quandary. Can you do this work? Can you help the person in front of you, even though you are carrying the sense of futility? You brought up cardiology a while ago. For some reason, I gravitate to that also. If the American Heart Association noticed that we had no access to cardiac ICUs, no uh, access to cardiac catheterization, there'd be a big outcry. I can't get any of our clients uh, to the state hospital for a good long-term treatment to get sobriety, to you know really rehabilitate one's uh, mind. Because they don't meet criteria and or because there aren't beds or... There are no criteria. Mm-hmm. Um, in, until recently in Colorado, our 17 mental health centers controlled access to those state hospital beds, few as they were. Uh, recently, the Medicaid managed care companies have tried to open that up a little bit and theoretically have succeeded in saying that, well, we have this case management program. I never really knew why they needed it at that level of our system. So at a Medicaid managed care company, if they had a rela- client had a relationship with the case manager, they might be able to get access to one of these long-term beds. I haven't seen it happen for any of our clients. Years ago, I could. Years ago, I cut in, in the 90s and in the early 2000s, mm-hmm. but that's gone. So, no, we don't have a system. Clients suffering from addiction, one lady who is spectacular, and I kept uh, threatening to drag her to the Capitol to testify at hearings as we're trying to get our legislators to make the changes we need, because she's smart and she's very articulate. 
She said she has multiple medical problems and then addiction that she's overcoming and bipolar. And uh, she said that her caregivers at the particular hospital system she's been a part of regularly hound her. When are you going to go to rehab? When are you going to go to detox? This is pointless. Have you been shooting up in your foot again? And she looks at them and goes, who shoots up in their foot? Are you stupid? No, I'm not doing that. And it was insulting and infuriating, but she needed the care. Uh, She's on dialysis now, et cetera. And uh, finally, she said one day, okay, I'll go. And uh, after the treaters were stunned for a minute, yeah, they looked around. There was no place to send her. Mm. And so she said, all right, you're going to shut up now. And in fact, she got sober on her own. months ago on the podcast, we had a Swiss psychiatrist and in part of the recording that didn't make the final cut, I I was, we were comparing the Swiss psychiatric system with our non-system. And I asked her, I said, do do you have really ill, mentally ill people on the street? She said, no. She said, you don't find that in Europe. I said, I know, but where are they? She said, they're, um, they're picked up and they're taken to places where they can get treatment and they're treated and they're housed. She said, that's what happens all over Europe. She said, why doesn't that happen here? Right. That's why. That's a million dollar question. Yeah. And it just seems so, she was so shocked. Um, she actually came to psychedelic science here in Denver and um, she was so struck by Denver, beautiful city. And, and what is happening with these really ill people? She said, you do yeah. not see this in Europe. Like this is no. not a thing. No. And uh, it's not that Europe is richer than us, but they do seem... You know, it maybe is it right? It's more of a um, maybe kind of a paternalistic thing. Like the state's going to care for you, and if you're not caring for yourself, we are going to pick you up in a van and take you to a place where you're going to get cared for, and maybe put you in a group home. I mean, I don't. Know, I'm sure the details are different in each European country, but it is striking to me. Ever since I've been a psychiatrist, when I travel internationally, I'm always like, where are the agitated, psychotic people on the streets? You don't see them. Only, no, only no. here. It's a U.S. thing. Well, it's because we love our freedom. Mm. And you, you can, if you really get in the weeds in this area of healthcare and in our society, you will hear some really perverse debates and notions, like uh, are people free to have a psychotic thought? Mm. Uh, there's a classic article called uh, Rotting With Your Rights On. And that term gets bandied about as we talk about, you know, what is freedom? The pendulum I mentioned earlier... It was the Lantern and Petra Short Act in California in the 60s, I think, that helped, well, criminalize is not the right word, but create a set of civil rights, personal rights, rights to autonomy that we all, all hold, hold dear, and for, for good reason. But many, I think, good thinkers and people trying to do this sort of health care have noticed that, you know, this isn't freedom. Uh, freedom to be jailed, um, the freedom to be, um, you know, living in a tent um, in freezing weather, weather mm-hmm. losing your digits one by one. Or even the freedom to have a psychotic episode, which I've heard many people in kind of the anti-psychiatry space call a quote-unquote spiritual emergency. And I've heard a whole podcast about, you know, we really need to think of psychosis as spiritual emergency and let people, you know, have their, kind of work through their spiritual emergency. And again, I think 
while those might exist, like I think you and I have seen what you and I have seen, like if that's a spiritual emergency, like nobody should have that. No, nobody should be going through that. I'm always amused when folks want to lecture or preach about that sort of thing, if I may, but they're not actually trying to help folks with those spiritual emergencies. Mm-hmm. I think part of the quandary is there's such a broad spectrum of experience. There's a group out of Boulder, I understand, called Hearing Voices. And these are folks, by and large, I understand, who, and I used to be on a committee with the, the psychologist who has schizophrenia that runs that group, and he's remarkable. Can you hear voices and get through your day course? You know, And there's plenty of people that do that. Do we want to obligate people to a lifetime of uh, psychotropic medications? No. Do we yet understand the full ramifications of taking antipsychotic medications for the long term? No, we better figure that out real quick. But uh, having worked at the state hospital, inpatient, outpatient, private, public as I have, if you have somebody who is working to sever the gas line for their trailer park, and they're going to blow up three or four different trailers and kill a bunch of people because they're psychotic, uh, we need to get treatment to him now. Mm-hmm. There's not time for exploration. Yeah. And does that usually, well, does that ideally look like an injectable antipsychotic? Is that what you lean toward because of, I don't know, compliance and effectiveness? Or what's your go-to? I'm glad you you bring it up. It's never immediate, the shots. We need to test oral, see how how people do. Uh, Of course. In my practice, I will turn to the shots long-acting injectables, as we call them, they're hugely expensive. Mm-hmm. When the client wants that, they don't want to deal with a, a twice-a-day medication and forget it and come in and get their refills. And when I tell them, I say, hey, if you just want to come see us once a month and we'll do this, and then you get on with your life, uh, then a lot of people um, like that idea. Once they understand that this is something that really helps them, if it really helps them. In our field, of course, we have um, the special challenge, and that's why we have involuntary treatment laws across the nation. Every state, they're a little bit different. That neurological term that we've adopted called anisognosia, right? Mm -hmm. Lack of insight. So if somebody comes into their primary care office and says, look, I'm having chest pain. Okay, I want you to go to the hospital. You're going to get a full workup. No, Uh, it's my daughter's graduation. I've had a good life. My father died at age 54. I'm 70. If I have a heart attack, I'm ready to go. Fine. It's a competent decision. It's your life. But when someone doesn't know why they're suffering, why they haven't bathed in a month, um, why they've changed their diet to gallons of milk only, Mm -hmm. how they're threatening the people that matter most to them in their life, and it's their only real lifeline, because they don't know that they're suffering from mania or psychosis. Yeah, paternalism, as you said, and a Latin term, parents patria, we have a responsibility to each other for that, mm-hmm. to get help to such a person. Mm-hmm. I'm curious when you, in that interim before you can get people on injectables, if you have somebody who is in psychosis and you get them to agree to take oral meds, are you just sending them out the door with, you know, seven olanzapine pills or are you having outreach go find them daily and here's your olanzapine or like, what is that? I mean, again, med compliance is such a hard thing in medicine in general, in psychiatry in particular, and even more, I would guess, in in your population. How does that work, huh? Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. no, it's uh, it's um, it's certainly not a one size fits all. 
I have clients who are religious about coming in for their appointments, and they know if I write something wrong on their prescription bottle or if the pharmacy gets something wrong. We have others, especially in um, housing programs, scattered site vouchers, et cetera, where the case manager or the nurses, the outreach nurses, the ACT team nurses, um, Housing First, et cetera, they'll get to them. Even more that we'll have a pillbox and we'll take a look at the pillbox and say, you're not using these right. Can we talk? Others that home health nurses will check on. So it's a combination and it's a, it's a, a maybe sort of a Cinderella shoe sort of situation where you try to slipper, where you try to find what's going to work best for this person in their life and for what they need and what they want. You asked about involuntary treatment a while ago. It's really, I think, unusual, probably not as common as it should be, that for somebody who ends up, their life is at risk or they put others' safety into, um, into jeopardy, that a judge might order a shot. Mm-hmm. And then, then it becomes a whole different question and paradigm. When they're out of the hospital, and let's say they come out on quartered medications and a quartered shot, how is that going to get picked up in the community? And will the community mental health center pick that up? What if they refuse a shot? Then what do you do? And mind you, this is a minority of people, but an important small subset, because these are some of the folks that do end up going to jails and prison, hurting people, causing some problems out on the street. And so it has to be done very thoughtfully and with a lot of consideration, not just for rights and ethics, but you know what's going to work. did an episode a couple years ago called Craig Plays Goalie on uh, Psychedelics, to, or Psychedelics Today. I was on there to refute an anti-psychiatry guy they had. But anyway, I, I compared what I do to being a goalkeeper. And I was just having this image of if I'm a goalkeeper, the goal that you're defending in your work is like five times as big as mine. And I'm just wondering, again, when you go to work, when you walk out there and you're trying to take all these shots, if you will, from just all these incredibly difficult, seemingly intractable problems. Like how do you not how do you not burn out, become demoralized, just lay down in the net and cry? <laughs> just I mean, because again, you and I treat the same quote unquote illnesses. I mean, our patients have the same kinds of things, but but mine have family support. Mine are driven to their appointments. Mine go home to a warm bed. Mine have meals. Mine often, if not mostly, have love, some love in their life, someone who's helping them, supporting them. And none of that scaffolding, much of that is gone for the people that you work with. Yeah, it's another area I think about a lot. And it's um, something that we have to cope with uh, every day. In fact, in 93, when I started this work here in Denver at, at the uh, at the main clinic for people experiencing homelessness. And I tell this story um, from time to time. I met a man who was alcoholic and depressed and he wanted Prozac. So yeah, I can do that. And I lectured him about his drinking and he kind of looked at me like I'm a suburban kid. 
and uh, shrugged it off and left. Social worker who was a legend herself, Mary Pat, took me aside the very next week, it's the second week, and said, uh, he's dead. And uh, I was shocked. He was drunk and went down a flight of stairs and broke his neck. But as I tell people, we looked at each other, we looked at the lobby, which is filled with people in need, and there really wasn't time to dwell on it. And we just, you know, had to call the next client. It's like a tent in war. It's like just a kind of image of you just like treating somebody, they died, but there's so many other injured soldiers out there, like you just got to keep... I think, not to be melodramatic, but I feel like it does, it does feel like that at times. I've often said... We were practicing third world medicine with first world responsibilities, which is can be a burden. With the pandemic hitting, all those sorts of pressures came into sharper focus. We were already, me as psychiatric director and, and my colleague as a, a general medical director, are signing off on four or five death notices every week. And we're on first name, you know, relationship with the coroner. So we'll call them when we haven't seen somebody and we want to know if they've got them. Or they'll call us if they need help with next to kin or maybe to identify somebody. When you're 20, 30 years into your career in medicine and you've trained in an intensive care unit, et cetera, I think you can roll with that easier, hopefully. Although by and large, we also have to recognize doctors are not trained well in coping and accepting with death. A lot of us go into this field to save lives and it's not it's kind of the farthest thing from our mind, ironically. When you're a 22-year-old social worker and this is your first job, it's a much different situation. So it was always um, high in my mind to support those people, talk to them. How was it when you went into the apartment and you saw the body and that body had been there for a couple of weeks? How was it for you when you called the family and let them know? And there's a high turnover. People come and go. There's a high turnover with interviewees. I've had some people walk into our lobby and I never see them again. They look around and they go, mm, no. Mm-hmm. But I think most of us, after a while, recognize that this is sacred work. And if we're not there, if we can't help this person, if we can't be there for them, and as one of my colleagues put, in this, put it, witness for them, who's going to? And we're trained also, when you think about addiction and say alcoholism, that someone has to hit bottom to turn around. Well, this is bottom. But I put together a resilience set of slides, and uh, we can talk about that a little bit if you want to, because I, it helped me. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm curious what specifically, it sounds like one of the things that's helped you is helping others. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I totally agree with that. But but for you, I mean, I was shocked when I came and toured the clinic with Chris you know, a couple weeks ago. You were talking about how many people die? Like, and I think Chris at one point asked you, like, how many patients does a clinic? Like, oh, three to five people die a week. Like, it's just so much death. And what's been most helpful for you personally? I mean, it clearly, it feels sacred. It feels like a calling. Like, it's deeply meaningful. You're desperately needed. But you know, when your heart's broken, when someone that you were really pulling for doesn't come back, I mean, how how have you coped with that? I did pick up this book, um, which helped me hopefully progress in that challenge, because we sure had to figure it out before the pandemic. The pandemic just made it an imperative. What I liked about this book by Charney and Southwick, a couple shrinks out of Yale, I think, was that they packaged the concept of resilience, which cuts both ways, by the way, because there's been a little bit 
backlash justifiable towards resilience, which we can talk about in a minute, into 10 points. Let's see if I can come up with all 10. But they broke them into four different categories, or at least I did. The first was accepting what you're facing. And maybe that's death. Maybe that's grief. And I feel, as a psychiatrist, and I was pleased to see that you're a fan like I am of Erwin Yalom. I picked up his book on existential psychotherapy real quick mm-hmm. once I realized what we were up against in this sort of healthcare, and that was back in the 90s. I don't think you can be a good psychiatrist without also being partly a priest, mm-hmm. uh, anthropologist, you know, you name it, a sociologist. You know, you, you, I think you really have to look broadly. Uh, there's so much more to a person than, you know, what their mother said to them when they were four (laughs) 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 about how we fit into society, our relationships, Mm -hmm. et cetera, all that good stuff, our role, our identity. So that acceptance of these hard edges to life are important. And then in that particular approach to resilience, they talked about looking um, outward. Who are your supports? Uh, Who are your role models? Who do you emulate? Do you use your supports? You can't just have them, you have to use them. And then looking inward. In their view, we all have to carry a certain spirituality. Now that may not come from a church or a synagogue or a mosque. That may be something you do that fits your particular view on life and death and the big questions. Like Yalom put it, and I feel like this is in every one of our appointments, people have to grapple with death, meaning, isolation, and freedom. And each of those issues has, you know, a a flip side. Uh, The last category in that particular book talks about maintenance. What are you doing to really stay resilient, stay physically, mentally healthy? I remember thinking early on in the pandemic, we have vital signs. We always check vital signs. What are the vital signs? But we need mental health vital signs. How did you sleep last night? Um, This is my favorite. (laughs) It's a good one. No, I think it is. It's important. Yeah. I did an episode called Psychiatry in One Question. Excellent. Yeah. What time did you wake up in the morning? Very good. Anyway. (laughs) Well, no. And now we're starting to tie um, quality of sleep to such things as forestalling PTSD, right? If we can just help somebody sleep, if we can give them a little propranolol, uh, they may not develop PTSD Mm -hmm. after a traumatic event, stuff like that. Uh, who are your supports? Are you using them? Are you not numbing yourself with alcohol or TV or anything? Are you facing you know, what you need to face? We also teased out the difference. And to me, this was very important, Craig. In healthcare, we're increasingly understanding the risks of burnout. And speaking of the downside to resilience, I think there's an appropriate backlash in many systems in our non-system healthcare where if administration says, you're not being resilient, go home and get resilient. The uh, appropriate response is, screw you. Mm-hmm. This job, uh, forget the mandatory overtime. Uh, forget the caseloads of 1,500. This is on you. You are the one. This is abusive. Yeah. And that leads us to the second category, which is moral injury. And people, I think, have realized that if our system is unjust, if there's inequality which is worsening, which is not good ultimately for anybody, then what are we doing? And then lastly, that third category was, is compassion fatigue or vicarious trauma. There were some MAs who burned out and left 
And uh, I was talking to one of them who wanted to come see me in a private practice. And I said, number one, I don't do that. Number two, that would be weird. I, we're coworkers, and that's our relationship. And, uh, but it was sweet. And I showed her those slides and sh- uh, the difference between burnout, compassion, fatigue, where you're burdened and harmed basically by the burden of another person's suffering, which, you know, is the last thing we want as, mm-hmm. as healers. And then lastly, moral injury. And she said, well, this would have been helpful to have known this before now. And I said, I'm so sorry. I did this talk. They didn't tell you, Mm -hmm. you know. I think there's something to be said that even in residency, if they had tried to educate us about any of this, like you just have to kind of go through it and then you have to, and then you have to backtrack and learn how to go, go through it. I don't think you can educate people about how to deal with suicides or murders or death threats or moral injury. I mean, you can mention, but until you're in it, which is another reason that we so need each other. I mean, I think psychiatry can be so siloed that you work in such a team that was cool to see, to visit you at the clinic and see all your people around you. I'm much more siloed in my goal, but you have a much bigger goal, so you need more people (laughs) around you. All good goals. wrap up with um with maybe some hope and what you know incorporating some of the things you've learned like if you could be the psychiatric czar of colorado the the friendly czar in a good way and you had adequate resources Uh, i know that's a big if but let's say you had adequate resources i mean how would you structure restructure a system that can address and specifically people who are the most at risk and, you know, we're seeing living on the streets and suffering and dying in front of us. Yeah. Easy. Simple question. (laughs) Um, you can't do work like this. You can't work in public health, (laughs) survive more than two days. I think unless you're thinking about those things, like how, what should be happening? So I'm just going to spitball a bunch of yeah. you know notions. Obviously, on one hand, the solution to homelessness is housing. But there's also a, a debate raging across the country, I think, among the healthcare for the homeless entities, which are in most major cities. Is that it? Well, I, I think most people that are paying attention recognize it's not that you know we need services, and we need uh, case management, we need more head start, we need to help people early rather than late. We need uh, detox. We need rehab. I think with the meager funding, uh, and as one of my colleagues at the Mental Health Center said years ago as we were meeting with one of the legislators, he said, you know, you all throw two bucks on a table and you watch us all scramble for it and throw elbows. Mm-hmm. And he was right. But you said, let's say we had adequate funding. Mm-hmm. So great. Do we need new laws? Are the current, do you think the current laws around involuntary commitment and treatment and hospitalization of those, at least let's speak for Colorado, that those are adequate in your view or 
or do we need those changed? Yeah, I love that you asked that because ironically, um, people at a number of levels, including at our legislature, are asking, well, that must be the problem, right? Let's just expand the criteria for involuntary commitment. Let's just... I, I think that's a mistake. Uh, and I like to point out that in the 90s and our involuntary treatment law here in Colorado, 2765, the lawyer that wrote it was actually still practicing here at our Denver probate court in the 90s. So uh, Morris, and I enjoyed working with Morris. I don't think the law is a problem. I think that when people are able to use it capably, ethically, competently, you can get people help. But that's, that's the big if, because you have to count on all these aspects of this system, so-called system to work, the police, the emergency, emergency department, the inpatient unit, theoretically maybe long-term care, and we don't have those things. I would flip our priorities. Fuller Tory talks about creaming. It's a term that's been around as we've watched deinstitutionalization unfold in this tragic, awful way, where with meager funding, the response throughout this country's mental health systems have been, community mental health programs has been to, you know, take the folks that are easiest, cause the least amount of trouble, uh, least expensive, uh, don't need a whole team of people to help them. Well, this is the result. So if I had to, if I could, I would enlist all the general practitioners, family docs that can treat depression, mild cases of anxiety, relatively um, easier cases of uh, bipolar condition, shouldn't use the word case maybe, help people that can get that sort of help in that sort of setting. And I'd mobilize the, the mental health, community mental health system to get to those people who do need it most, who that we're seeing on the streets, who don't know that they're ill, don't know that uh, their addiction is about to kill them, and get those people that are suffering the worst help first. Mm -hmm. And that's an unpopular notion. A lot of our colleagues, even in the public system, aren't trained to deal with folks who are aggressive and nasty, not well. Yeah. I don't know what it's like in Denver, but in, I've been so impressed in Fort Collins. I've had a number of situations where I'm out in public and or I was involved um, professionally where the Fort Collins police interacted with people who were very psychotic and agitated and they were so gentle. They were so peaceful. They gave lots of space. A couple of times I, I went up to the cops afterwards. I said, I'm a psychiatrist. I said, I was watching you. You were amazing. And I just think obviously that's not happening in all cities, but I think more and more that is happening, but it was, it was actually a really beautiful thing. Now, who knows if they got the treatment they needed, but at least, you know, they weren't shot or beaten <laughs> on the streets or just abandoned, you know, that they were causing real mayhem and the Fort Collins police just so gently handled it. Uh, it was wonderful. Yeah. It was really lovely to see. So that gives me hope. Good. Yeah, yeah, it should. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anything else that you want to add as we're wrapping up here? This has been super interesting for me. No, just that I'm glad you're interested. And, and I know you, like so many others, have witnessed what's happening and, and wanted to know more and, and what, should be, what we should be doing better mm -hmm. and how we can help each other better. So yeah. I, I appreciate that. It's almost like if we were general surgeons, like I'm operating you know, in Omaha in some <laughs> hospital and you're like on the battlefield you know, somewhere. And dealing, you know, we both have the same training, but you know, I... I look at what you do with great admiration and 
again, Chris and I coming to your clinic a couple of weeks ago, that, that was just fascinating to see where you work. And it's, it's so different than where I work. It's so different, <laughs> but it's cool. It's really cool. I, I thought, wow, I'm so happy that uh, clinics like that exist and docs like you exist. And so thank you. Well, thank you too. We are the richest country in the history of the world, but arguably the worst developed country on the planet in which to have a serious psychiatric illness. If you're lucky and you have family resources and support, and you aren't so ill that you don't push your family and supports away, you might be okay. But if you don't have resources and the scaffolding of family, then homelessness and or incarceration and or death are common outcomes in this country of ours. As I noted earlier, you just don't commonly see agitated, psychotic people in the streets in other countries, at least any that I've been to. What does this say about us as a society? Is this what we call freedom and liberty to allow people who often can't make meaningful treatment decisions for themselves because of their psychiatric illnesses and their addictions, to watch them plunge through the cracks and end up with destroyed lives? This does not seem kind or wise. Or just. I so hope that we might learn from other countries and see what other models are out there for caring for the most vulnerable members of society. <laughs>